Podcast. Christina Cho, and this is STEAM the Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Today, we'll be continuing the topic of getting your foot in the door. But this time, we're talking about how to crush an interview. Last episode, we talked about how to land an interview, writing a good cover letter and resume, and maybe even cold calling or emailing people to find out about job opportunities and get that interview. For the next two episodes, we're going to talk about what happens next. What happens after you land an interview? How do you prepare for it? And how can you make sure you walk out that door confident that you just got the job? The following two episodes are Crushing the Interview Part 1, Joining a Nonprofit Organization, and Crushing the Interview Part 2, Scaling the Academic Ladder. In Part 1 of Crushing the Interview, I'll be chatting with Dr. Danielle Perry, the Coastal Resiliency Program Director for Mass Audubon. We'll talk about how she landed her job with Mass Audubon and provide some useful tips on interviewing for those interested in joining the nonprofit sector. In part two of Crushing the Interview, I'll be chatting with Dr. Crystal Amistarbird, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry and Biophysics at UNC Chapel Hill. In that episode, we'll take a deep dive into the interview process in academia, from entering graduate school to becoming faculty. In both episodes, we'll talk about what inspired these women to choose the career paths they've taken and the strategies that they use to showcase their brilliance and qualifications for the positions they applied for. We hope that you leave both conversations feeling inspired, empowered, and confident that you will crush that interview. But first, I'm talking with Dr. Danielle Perry. As Mass Audubon's Coastal Resilience Program Director, Dr. Perry leads salt marsh resiliency work, which includes implementing climate adaptation projects and working with town, nonprofits, and other environmental agencies to preserve Massachusetts coastal lands and resources. Dr. Perry received two bachelor's degrees in marine biology and environmental science from the University of New Haven and her PhD in biological and environmental sciences from the University of Rhode Island. During her academic career, Dr. Perry won multiple National Science Foundation fellowships, including one that moved her to Shanghai, China, where she studied how to improve wetland plant growth to help build coastal resiliency. Her scientific and academic excellence can be seen in the countless awards and grants she's received over the course of her career, as well as her stellar publication record. Dr. Perry is also the co-founder of the POCIE, where she facilitates a safe space for people of color working in the Massachusetts environmental sector and organizes outreach initiatives to enhance representation of people of color in the environmental sector. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to have you on the show. Absolutely. And that's such a wonderful job in the introduction. Um, but I can speak a little bit more about my background. So I started working for Mass Audubon about two and a half years ago. I entered Mass Audubon right after, even right before I graduated from University of Rhode Island with my with my doctorate degree. 
And I started as their climate change adaptation ecologist, where I focused on doing climate vulnerability assessments of coastal systems to see how they were going to fare when it came to current and future impacts of sea level rise. And then from that position, about a year ago, I started as the Mass Audubon's Coastal Resilience Program Director which allowed me to take a little bit more of a higher level view at the entire coastal strategy for the organization. I'm working with various individuals um, within within the organization to help guide our coastal um, strategic plan. And so while doing that work, I also um, doing hands-on salt marsh resiliency and salt marsh restoration work for the organization. And then being able to to work with, with partners like state partners and even some partners from Rhode Island who I've been able to continue to work with through my Mass Audubon projects and being able to do hands-on restoration and resiliency work. That is really cool. Like, so, so cool. So, I mean, the work that you do is incredibly timely and important, especially uh, with everything that is happening literally right now, like Hurricane Maria that swept through Puerto Rico, knocking out the grid again and leaving so many people homeless and injured. And then right now, Florida is dealing with its own. Now it's a tropical storm, but Hurricane Ian that like ripped through that state literally last night. And so, you know, all these coastal regions are getting hit with these crazy tropical storms and hurricanes. It's kind of terrifying and um, really sad. And so when you see things like this on the news, how do you feel as an environmental scientist and as someone who does this work? Like, what does that do to you? Yeah, it's definitely hard to hear. It's definitely hard to watch as well. And it just makes me feel more urgency and more motivated to continue the work that I'm doing and do it at a larger scale and further educate um, the impact of the work that I'm doing and how it can protect us and how it can um, make us stronger, especially when we continue to see these impacts of climate change. And when we see these storms, when we're seeing these effects of flooding, just makes me even more motivated to want to continue to 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 enhance resiliency of our coastal habitats because they're really our first line of defense when it comes to these types of natural disasters. Yeah. I mean, I just I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And I mean, we can probably spend an entire like episode separately just talking about climate change and the amazing work that you do to kind of combat it as it's coming our way, like, you know, and, um, but maybe we can talk about that like season two or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Um, So um, Danielle, what, or who inspired you to become a marine biologist? It was actually a bit of a funny story. So my, my dad, one day when I think I was 12 years old, because that's when you're supposed to decide your whole life when you're 12. (laughs) um, (laughs) So um, he came up to me one day and he was was like, oh, and I was thinking about it was like, bring your daughter to work day. And he and I was thinking about, oh, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And he was like, oh, why don't you do marine biology? And I was like, huh, I never thought about that. Because when I was growing up, like in school, they don't talk about environmental science and marine Mm. biology as career paths. I was always (laughs) interested in um, environment and the environment, environmental concepts. I was always interested. I was always in my family telling everybody to recycle. I was always environmentally conscious and, but no one talked about that actually being a job. Like I loved ecology before I knew what ecology was. And so, um, so he really 
sparked that when he sort of like, oh, be a marine biologist. So I researched it and figured out what it actually was. It's not playing with whales and dolphins. It's it's a, it's a lot more than that. And, um, <laughs> I so thought I, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and when I, so I entered college as a marine biologist and even before college, I started doing marine biology camps and summer camps just to learn more about the field. And so I did pursue it when I was a freshman in college and I just immediately loved it. I just, cause I knew I didn't want like a typical like nine to five job. I knew I wanted to do something that I felt was very meaningful. And I just felt like I was able to accomplish that through marine biology and environmental science. That's amazing. I mean, I was, I looked through your ridiculously crazy good CV and like you've done so many really cool things as uh, like, not just in, you know, Massachusetts, but like you, you went to another part of the world and like did work there. And I mean, I think that's really cool for our listeners to hear, you know, um, there's, there's no limit to, there's no geographical limit for science or technology engineering. The steam is like, the world is your oyster. You just have to like go out and find your passion and, you know, you can be on the other side of the world doing really important work and learning a lot in that region and that community that you can apply then back into the community you live in all the time. So I thought that was, that's really cool. And it's, it's so nice to hear um, that your dad was like, Hey, marine biology, how about that? Like, you know, I think it's, I mean, parents have a lot of influence and um, you know, I don't think my, my parents didn't really know, (laughs) <laughs> what science was because like they neither of them went to college they're like high school grads and um, they just knew I had to go to college and being Korean parents they're like you have to be a doctor and I'm like oh, okay I have like one option they're like okay okay maybe a lawyer I was like so two options <laughs> uh, and then the rest was like go to college and then figure it out so um, yeah, that's really cool that your dad was like, hey, mm-hmm. there's this thing that matches your personality. <laughs> and it's and it's refreshing, too, because I honestly didn't know that my dad knew what marine biology was before. Like, this wasn't like a like a ongoing conversation we had. <laughs> like, I had no clue that he even knew that was a profession. And then he mentioned it to me. So and it's and it's nice to kind of think about like your like your family's paying attention to you, like some things yeah. that you don't even recognize in yourself that your family's recognizing and, and kind of point out to you. So. That, yeah, that's that's so cool. That's uh, it's really nice just like to have people in your life that like notice and pay attention and know you. And it's like, hey, you know, I think this might work. So that that is mm-hmm. a really cool story. I think um, so on episode one, we had Dr. Nita Maley, who also you know talked about her father being her inspiration and really like stimulating her to become the cancer biologist that she is now. So there's a lot of like um, people around you really do influence you and what you decide to become. So super cool. Um, So why, or like, how did you end up choosing to work for a nonprofit organization instead of a university or a for-profit company? Um, So before we we hop into that question, can I like add to like something that you just said? Absolutely. (laughs) So so you, you mentioned that it's like important to kind of surround yourself with like positive people who can kind of encourage you. But I also just wanted to recognize that like what a privilege that is to have positive Mm. people around you. Yeah. Um, Because oftentimes as people of color, I remember when I was in like high school and recognizing that um, 
that there's not a lot of people of color in environmental science and mm-hmm. and, 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 and in marine biology. And so mm-hmm. when I was growing up, when I was in, especially when I was in high school, I would even have guidance counselors tell me like, oh, I should try to do something else. I telling me that I was like an average student that I should basically <laughs> like aim lower. And, and I didn't realize it at the time. That was probably because of their own unconscious biases against me as yeah. an African-American woman. And then thankfully I had folks like my father who were just like, don't listen to them. Like, that they're crazy talk you Mm -hmm. do you are the one who sets your goals and knows what you're capable of and I was lucky enough to have that but recognizing that not everyone is lucky enough to have that and so just wanting to recognize that and that um for folks that might not have that positive influence like never letting people set your limitations like you are the one that knows you the best and you are the one who can tell what you can and can't do and not letting other people make that decision for you Oh, I'm so glad you you like brought this up. Yes. So, okay, guidance counselors, <laughs> teachers, uh, people who who are out there like guiding young people. Listen, you gotta check in with yourself sometimes and <laughs> and see if you might have some of your own biases and you know not recognize that your words have weight and power. You might not think that it does, but it does. And Mm -hmm. when kids are in high school or like middle school, elementary school, even graduate, anyways, when they're in school, they're looking to you for advice and encouragement. And Mm -hmm. when you're like, hey, actually you're not good enough. Let's just like not even try. You're crushing someone's soul. Like, I Mm -hmm. I mean. Such an informative, um, like formulating time for a person. And like, it's just such a big impact that they have and that they really just shouldn't take for granted. It should take so seriously and just be so conscious of what the messages that they're portraying. Yes, yes. And for all of you listeners out there who are like, who've heard that before, because I've heard it too. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 it's, it's, it sucks. It's going to hurt. It might take you some time to get over it. And maybe you'll never really fully recover from someone telling you not so wonderful things. Um, but yeah, as Danielle said, you really know yourself the best. And it is important to surround yourself with people who encourage you and tell you, like, don't listen to those naysayers. Don't listen to the people who really have no right to tell you, like, how low you should go or how high you can climb. Like, they don't know. They're not living your life. Like, I can't curse on this podcast. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, like, you're right. I think that is something that people don't talk about as much as they should. But, um, you know, privilege comes in so many different forms. And some of it is truly, they might, you might not have people that can provide you with financial support or the know-how, but just an encouraging word, just being supportive and you know, helping build your confidence, that in and of itself is uh, like so powerful and not everyone has that. So if you have people in your life like that, consider yourself also a little bit on the privileged side. Mm -hmm. I know that's like tough to hear sometimes because you're like, oh, I did everything on my own. It's true. You probably did. (laughs) And there are a lot of crap going against you. But every one person that's there, that's like, you can do it. That little voice that that is some people don't even have that. Yeah. But thanks for pointing that out. That's that's a really important thing to talk about. Um, so going back to the other question, like how did you end up working for a nonprofit organization? Because most people, when they finish their PhD, it's like, 
you do a postdoc, you do a professorship, you stay in academia. Or, you know, people like, okay, you can do industry. Like that's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> those are like two of the big options. So how did you find Mass Audubon or how did it find you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so very true. Like when you're in academia, when you're getting your PhD, people often like to funnel you to academia and continue to academia. Um, but I was very um, clear, or at least I, I knew that I did not want to pursue academia. I think I was very confident in that. I just nothing against academia, but I just felt like it wasn't for me. And I, I just really just want. It sounds cliche, but I just really wanted a job where I had. I knew I was making an impact and I was knew mm. I was having a positive impact, making it making a difference. And I felt that was going to be in a field where I was able to do active applied conservation restoration type of work. And so because I knew I had that desire very early, like when I was in college, I would take classes for like conservation um, a, that would kind of set me up for that type of field. And when I was in graduate school, when I was in the position of choosing my my dissertation, my project, um, that essentially that I'll be working on for five years, I kind of went um, out of my way to partner and meet people who were doing that active restoration resiliency work. Mm-hmm. And which is, again, um, not always encouraged <laughs> in, when you're in graduate school, because usually when you're in graduate school, they're like, stay in the lab, do your project, like don't yeah. do internships, like focus on, on your dissertation. So mm-hmm. I tried um, my best to do both, to make... Mm-hmm to get internships and incorporate them into my dissertation projects um, because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get that like that applied um, restoration resiliency training and just like working within um, academia or just working in the lab. Yeah. So I started volunteering for Save the Bay, which is a mm-hmm. um, nonprofit that works a lot in Rhode Island and a little bit in Massachusetts as well. Um, and I just started interning with them and then being connected with their um, director of restoration. And then I got very mm-hmm. involved with her name is Wenley Ferguson. I got very involved with Wenley um, throughout my graduate career, helping her with her projects and the projects that she was working on. I was then able to incorporate it into my dissertation research. So I was able to take the restoration projects that she was leading and add like a certain research component to it Mm -hmm. so that it can incorporate it into my dissertation so I can use it to get my degree and, 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 Uh, make sure that I was at the same time getting that restoration training. Um, And so and so sometimes having to find your own mentors is a big thing, too, because sometimes Mm -hmm. it's not just your your advisor that um, it's it's also going out into the community, like picking and choosing other mentors that are able to kind of move you forward in your desired um, destination. So who you feel that are aligned with what you want to do, like making the effort to reach out and and networking, take advantage of opportunities when they're available um, in order to get that experience that you might need that you might not have gotten otherwise. Yeah. Wow. That is really good advice. And it sounds just like listening to you're like, it can tell you're like super driven and focused. You're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to find a way to do it. And that is super impressive. And it takes a lot of confidence to be like, I know what I want to do and I will, I will find my people. Cause I I know that, you know, it, it can be hard to do that and set yourself up, but you know, 
that's that's super inspiring. And I hope a lot of young people hear this and we're like, you know what, I can I can make my own route and I can go find people that are going to help me do that. Mm-hmm. So that actually is like a perfect segue into the question I wanted to ask you. So you, you talked about doing internships. I noticed that, you know, you did a lot of paid fellowships, but you also did like several unpaid internships and volunteer work prior to working as um uh, as a salaried ecologist in Mass Audubon. So why did you, more than why, like, did you believe that these, do you believe that these unpaid internships are were like powerful and impactful? Like, why did you choose to do them? And the reason I ask is because it, like for me and for some of my mentees who are low income, first generation students, an unpaid internship can seem really daunting or like in a way useless. Cause if you are working without pay, but you need the money, or if you're like supporting your family in some ways, it seems like a bad idea. Um, what is your advice for that? Like, you know, in terms of choosing to do something that might not pay you right now, but could help you in your future? Yeah. And I, so I completely recognize the privilege that I had to be able to do unpaid internships because that's not the case for a lot of individuals and unfortunately a lot of individuals of color. And I think that's a big problem of why we don't see a lot of people of color in environmental science Mm -hmm. because oftentimes folks that are able to do these unpaid internships come from a life of of privilege. And, And some people, that's just not the case for other individuals. And Unfortunately, the way the system is now, and I, I don't agree with how it is now, is that people who are able to afford like unpaid internships or able to, to, to do things without pay are able to, to say that they have this experience. And again, recognizing that I had um, my own privilege of being able to do that um, of the unpaid. And I don't, agree, I, I don't agree with unpaid internships. I okay. feel that folks should pay people to do work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Strong advocate for that. Um, and and I think that, like I mentioned before, is that's just such a big problem. And yeah. so I would encourage not even, not, I'm not even talking right now to the folks who are pursuing internships, but I'm talking to folks who are giving the internships, yeah. pay your interns. <laughs> yeah. Find no, a think- way to pay your interns, find work on doing a grant if you're, relying on unpaid service, then that's a Mm -hmm. large equity problem. Absolutely. And that that should be recognized. Very, 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 very real issue here. Like, I mean, um, I've, I've been on different diversity, equity, inclusion committees that are trying to open up the world of the biological sciences and they want to create these like summer programs and things for undergrads or high school students. And a lot of them are unpaid. And when you talk about money, it's like, well, I don't know if we have the money for it. It's like, well, you do realize that does limit who, I mean, it it does exclude a lot of people. And um, if you really want to improve diversity, if you really want to make, you know, this field more inclusive or equitable, you have to be able to consider the fact that some people need to make money. Like they can't just not do that. And so, yeah, that, yeah, I thought it'd be really um, important to ask you that question. And I'm glad that we were able to talk about that, that it is a privilege to be able to do an unpaid internship and they do help a lot in so many ways. You build networks, you have experience, you're ex- you have exposure to people and professionals and fields that you might not otherwise get. But 
you know, it is limited to people who can afford those like however long months or weeks without making money. And so, yeah, programs. Hello. Uh, <laughs> pay you your wanna, people. <laughs> I know. Pay, find money. And, mm-hmm. you know, you'll really yeah. open it up to a whole different set of human beings who are just so willing and excited and want to do this work. It's just they have other obligations that they have to think about. Yeah. And so since we're talking about the whole like low income thing, for me as a first generation low income student, I had to deal with and still currently deal with imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, you know, so the thing I learned, the thing that was advised to me was um, to fake it till you make it right. So to kind of feign confidence until I actually feel confident. So sometimes when I give presentations or meet people that I know I have to collaborate with or I need them to get on my team, um, I'll tell myself like they don't know you. They don't know your record or where you've been. <laughs> all they see is a scientist. That's that's all they got right in front of you. So be the great scientist that you are, that you can be. And so I give myself a little mental pep talk, you know, to like kind of shake out my nerves. And then once I get into the groove of my presentation or I'm in the conversation, I start to actually feel confident. Um, so do you ever feel like you have to give yourself a pep talk or do you ever feel like you you know, maybe don't belong in the room or weren't good enough to be there. And if, I mean, even though, come on, like you're like a rock star, but you know, sometimes those feelings come. How do you, like when you feel, or if you felt those things, like how did you like work through them? Yeah, I feel, I still feel that. I, I, that's a very common feeling that I still am working on and getting better at because not listening to that voice in your head telling you that you don't belong or that you don't know what you're talking about or, or comparing yourself to other people mm. and then kind of being too hard on yourself. Like I am such a victim of that that I'm still <laughs> trying to work on to get better yeah. and have more confidence in my abilities and my experience. Um, and and it's even harder for people of color in in the sciences and in STEAM because I I can speak for myself. I'm, I often find myself to be the only person of color in the room, mm-hmm. um, especially within my current position. And and that it's disappointing because um, as well. And when I was growing up, um, I was normally it it just seemed like everyday life because I grew up in a predominantly white area, Mm -hmm. um, white neighborhood. I was normally the only person of color in the room as I was growing up. And I did, I didn't take until I was in like end of college, early in graduate school that I realized like, no, this is a problem. Like I shouldn't be accepting of the fact that I'm the only person of color in the room. Like I shouldn't have to, um, be in that type of situation where I feel like have to give myself extra pep talks to convince myself that I belong in a space where Mm -hmm. I don't see other people like me. And Mm -hmm. so, and because of that, I tried, um, especially when graduate school of doing different like outreach initiatives where I can be a face to other people of color, especially uh, young students of color, so they can see other folks within this field so that hopefully one day um, we can address this diversity um, and equity issue. And, and being able to take my privilege and take my opportunities that I have and then being able to give back as well. Because now be, once I became a director, it, that comes with privilege at my yeah. organization. So I actually started a coastal resilience internship program this past mm-hmm. summer at my um, u- utilizing my current position, a paid internship. Hey. <laughs> I got a grant. <laughs> nice. I got a grant that was able to sponsor um, six paid interns and um, awesome. we compensated them for their 
time, their travel, um, gas. We have we also sponsored them to go to conferences, and so they can create that network. Um, Very nice. And, yeah. and and it was open. Um, we were really encouraging people of color to apply, and it was it was wonderful because we had like over like about four of our four out of six of our students being re- uh, representatives from people of color. Um, and so that's why I say that when people are just like, oh, there's just not people of color out there interested in this. I'm like, that's not true. That is <laughs> like, not true. If you lower the barriers for them participating, they're there and they're interested yeah. and they want to be there. They just have yes. to have the right opportunity, equitable opportunities, and yes. they'll be first in line to participate. Yes. And so, um, so yeah, so I just think that's just so important to um, being able to, at least for me anyway, because I, I know like right now in a professional sense that there is less people of color. So trying mm-hmm. to make myself seen as much as possible and being able to put myself in situations where I can interact with young students is, has always been something that's important to me. Yes, that is so yeah. So um, a, a friend and colleague and someone who I admire a lot, Eileen Fernandez, who will be on one of the episodes uh, uh, later in the season, um, she was frustrated of hearing uh, the reason behind a lack of uh, diversity and people of color in faculty positions in academia were because there just weren't any available that were good enough or had, you know, met their standards. And she was like, that's such crap. Like, that's not true. And so she created and she um, really trailblazed um, this seminar or this symposium called Intersections Science Fellow Symposium to highlight um you know, scientists, postdocs um, who are from historically marginalized communities so that they can really showcase like, yo, I'm here. I'm doing amazing work. You just overlook me because, you know, of other things that you need to deal with, not because I'm not good enough. And I think you're right. It's like there's there are um, programs, institutions, organizations have to do a better job of understanding that, you know, there are, you can't just say you're going to improve the diversity. There's actionable things you have to do, um, including paying people, um, you know, (laughs) and thinking about what has historically made this field or whichever field you're in inequitable and combat that, not just say you're going to hire more and look at more diverse candidates, but actually figure out what the problems are, solve those um, to improve representation. So mm-hmm. yeah. thank you and for bringing that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely a, it's, um, it's a bottom up process of needing to kind of to rethink one, what we think of as like the best candidate um, from like what we're putting out in job postings, like who's in the hiring process, who's in the room doing the interviews, like what that group looks like. It really is a needing to have a change from the bottom up, because mm. if we're being honest, like this like field was not I don't know how how um, how real I can get, but <laughs> get <laughs> this real as was not made for getting. people of color. Like it was, yeah. it's like systematically made to exclude people of color, yeah. and so that's unfortunately the system that we're still working in. And so mm. that system is a broken system, and we need to find mm-hmm. ways to work outside of that system if we want to address. Um, equity problems and, and, yes. and to improve the problem um, yeah. or solve the problem or begin to solve the problem. So we need to stop working within this this man-made, white man-made system and being able to address that unconscious bias that was mm-hmm. thrust upon us 
growing up in the world that we live in and just being able to recognize that and then being able to start in some cases from the beginning and yeah. and and being able to reinvent the system so it is equitable. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, this is like such an important, I mean, we're going to be touching upon this like in multiple episodes. This will keep coming up because that is the point of STEAM to trying to really address these issues to realistically and effectively make STEAM more representative and more equitable and more inclusive. So we will be talking about this in many different shapes and forms. And I hope people can hear like the, you know, the things that need to be changed, but also, um, for our young folk and also people who are already in the field who kind of feel crushed by some of these systemic problems we have, uh, you know, you're not alone. There's there's a whole bunch of us and there's a lot of people out there who are experiencing the same pressures and the weight as you are. And it's also not solely up to you to fix that problem. Um, you know, you can only do your best and be your best, like be the best scientist, the best, you know, technologist, the best engineer, the best mathematician, the best artist that you can bring to yourself. Like you bring you, that is already excellency. That is already doing your part. Institutions and programs have their part too. So, Going back to like your part, I wanted to ask you about like your interview process, right? So when you interview, interviewed for Mass Audubon, was there, you know, a specific way you prepared for that interview? Like, how did you arm yourself so that when you walked in, you're like, I'm ready. I got this. I, I can get this interview down. Like, how did you prepare for your interview? Yeah, I think um, so. The Like, at first, it was pretty boring of me just like doing mock interviews with like my roommate, um, my, my parents and looking on the most asked about interview questions and being prepared for that as well. But to be honest, like once you get in there, like you, you prepare as much as you do, but then the adrenaline like gets in and like you like forget half the things that you try to prepare for. Um, so I think one thing that really helped me was thinking about it more as a conversation so when I was preparing for my interview with Mass Audubon, I kind of just did like your typical things that you would think of. Like I pr did practice interviews with like my family and my roommates. Um, I would like look online to see like practice, like very common interview questions. And then fully recognizing once you're in the interview, like a lot of nerves and things kick in and like you, like you hope that you remember everything that you prepared. But honestly, for me, like half of the things like escaped my mind. So one of the things that helped to um, calm me down was just thinking about the processes more as a conversation and mm. and naturally just thinking as like human nature like people don't like want you to fail like they're well I, like good people good people <laughs> don't want you to fail they want to see the good in you like they sent they they asked you to interview because they already saw potential in you so they mm. they want you they want you to um do well in the interview they want to see where um how you fit and that if you th and they want to see them you fitting within the organization because mm -hmm. they're spending the time and already have reached out saying that they're interested in whatever you've already portrayed so i think what really helped me was just thinking about it more of a conversation more of like a get to know you um, type of, of situation and just remembering really just to be myself because oftentimes I find when I try to to be something that I think somebody else wants me to be that's when I trip up like that's when it becomes mm. disingenuous that's when people recognize that I'm uncomfortable and things like that so I just tried to remember as much as possible to just be myself like be who I am and it will come across because it comes across as like passion and, and interest and um, so remembering that most important thing when I'm 
them in, in, in an interview. And then also remembering, too, it's like it's not just the folks in the room interviewing you. You're also interviewing them because you also want to make sure that this is a place that you want to be because this is where you're going to be spending a good chunk of your time and in an environment yeah. where you're going to be spending a good chunk of your time that's going to be impactful for you. So you want to make sure that you're a good fit um, for that organization. You're putting yourself in a situation where you feel like you can thrive and you can do well and you have the support that you need. So that's mm-hmm. why I take so seriously, too, like when you have the opportunity in an interview to ask your own questions and be very thoughtful with those own, own questions, because you are also interviewing those groups, um, that group as well. And that helps to kind of keep the pressure down as well, because it's not like a, you don't feel as much like do or die. It's like also you're also putting something on them to be like, no, like I need to make sure that these people are right for me as well. I've heard that, too. I've heard. I mean, I haven't done too many interviews. I mean, um, academic interviews are a lot of times they're they're trying to like figure out what you know how I, I mean I guess it's the same like what you bring to the table and also you are interviewing the lab to see if you're a good fit do you get along with the mentor you know I think that is very true I don't think it's always just you know you on the hot seat they're also kind of on the hot seat too so if that helps you feel less nervous to know that you know it's it's a two way street like they're mm-hmm. also trying to you know prove to you that they're the right group for you, right fit for you. I think that's a really good um, point to make. Uh, did you have, was there any, like, was there a question or like, was there ever a question in your interview that kind of like threw you off or like, whoa, that was, I was not expecting that kind of question or anything like that during your interview? Um, so like one question that really stood out to me, um, they asked me to talk about um, how I would communicate science to like non-scientists. Like, what would I say? Like, how would I relate mm. these issues to people who might not think about it every day of their life like I do? Um, yeah. And so being able to kind of focus on like science communication and being able to relate to people and what they care about and relating like what the message that I'm trying to say to something that they're interested in mm. um, was more of a question that that stood out to me um, a bit. And I remember I fumbled through that a little bit more. And so I was like, I made sure I was like, okay, I need to like think about that better because it's such an important question. Because like if we can't get people to care, especially if we can't get people to care about the environment and climate change, and then it's like an upward battle. It's already an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. But just being able, if we're able to make that connection clearer of why people should care, that's such an important like victory if we can really just connect these environmental issues to every people everyday lives and what they care about. Yeah, that's that is a really good question. I mean, especially in your field, because you are working with communities and you're working with people. And um, I mean, climate change is such a weird, hot topic and such a weirdly, oddly, unnecessarily, in my opinion, debated topic. Um, So I imagine being able to communicate the importance of the work that you do and why it needs to be done is a really big part of your job. And so yeah, that's a, that's that is a really good question. So, you know, you're the program director and mm-hmm. now you're in a position of power and I'm sure you all are also part of the interviewing the interviewer. So, on that end, on that side, what is some advice that you might give to someone who's preparing for an interview? Like what are you looking for when you interview someone? 
Yeah, I think one thing, um, because I recently hired someone to work on my team. And then so I think one thing that really just kind of clicked in my mind is like when I was going through the process on the other end was was that sometimes it's like not even anything that you if you don't get a position, it's not anything that you did wrong. Okay, It's more of the fact is like there the group might be looking for something specific or a specific type of experience. So it's not anything because I remember when I wouldn't get a job, I would be like, oh, like I should have answered that question better like I didn't Mm -hmm. prepare it I would be so hard on myself and then sometimes it's not even any of that it's like you could have had the most stellar resume like the amazing things but it just might not have been exact like a certain thing that they were looking for or what they needed because oftentimes Mm -hmm. I can from my experience there was like a certain thing that I needed in a candidate in order to um for to add to my team there was like a a a certain type of experience that I needed and I saw amazing candidates but it was just wasn't the thing that I needed at that time Mm -hmm. and it was nothing against them because they were all amazing and stellar and if I hired them they would have done a great job um but it was just like one thing or like a few things or type of experience that at that particular time, that's what I just needed to add to my team. And it's nothing against them personally. And it's nothing like, like they felt they couldn't have done anything differently. It's just, mm. um, and they all had amazing experiences. It's just like, just sometimes it's just what you, what the person needs at the time and not. And so I learned that I not to, like in the future, not to take it personally. That's what I tell folks too. just not, don't take it personally because you're amazing. It's just, they just are looking for one particular thing and like you Mm. you are who you are and there's nothing wrong with that and your experiences your experiences and they're all amazing Mm -hmm. um because they might be looking for like one particular thing that you so happen might not have had that experience in and and that's nothing personal against the person that's that's really great advice because i think it's really hard to not take it personally when because it's rejection right at at the Mm -hmm. end of the day you got rejected so now you're like feeling really down on yourself but um that's absolutely true. I think a lot of times you could do the best that you possibly can. And at the end, you just weren't the right fit. And it's it has nothing to do with who you are as a person or what you can offer um, in terms of your skill set. But it might just not be exactly what works for the job that you're applying for. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was um, if if someone so I was told um when it comes to interviewing for jobs, it's really good to do like a lot of research on the job itself and the company or the people that you're working with. Um, And in the world of Zoom, people would tell me like they would have post-its on the side (laughs) of like their computers to have like little notes. Um, But when you're, when we inevitably, a lot of the interviews will go back to in in person. So you won't be able to do those notes and like, you know, post-its everywhere. Like, how do you recommend people um, do their homework, like do their research. And then how do they remember all of that? <laughs> like, how do you bring that into the interview? I know you said like half the time you like forget the things, <laughs> but um, what are some, like, what are some critical things that you think a person needs to come equipped with when they go into an interview? Yeah, definitely. So look into the organization's mission. If they have a mission statement, be familiar with their mission. Um, I, I, when I was interviewing for Mass Audubon, I, w- I scanned their website, like looking at the different programs that they had. Um, so like one thing that I found was like a salt marsh science program on their website. So I tried to like work it, that into the conversation. So it kind of knew that you knew something about the organization. And you also had suggestions on ways that you thought could be things could be um, like improved or enhanced. So it kind of gives that 
makes them know that you're giving it a lot of thought and you're already making suggestions and and being um, inquisitive about it. Um, and then also thinking, so yeah, that's what I would recommend is like making sure being familiar with the mission statement, like be familiar with their ongoings, like what they do on a regular basis, um, whatever's available um, publicly, be and try to just work it into the conversation. So they know, like, for example, like Mass Audubon used like a certain software to do like um, prioritize like habitat. So I like made sure I was familiar a little bit with that software so I can like work it into the conversation. So just being those little tidbits just show that they, that you put in the extra effort and went the extra mile to, to like understand um, what they do on a day-to-day and how you fit into that. So it's easier for them to picture you within that realm when you're able to kind of show those examples. Yeah, that, that's really good. Yeah, know the mission statement, like the goal of the organization or the group that you're going into. Yeah, I have like one last question and then I, I think we'll be able to wrap up a little bit here. But um, so now that you are in a position of power and leadership. Um, do you think that your perspective on like the interviewee has changed? So like when you're the interviewee and when you're looking to get the job, the, the feelings that you have versus like on the other side, the feelings that you have, what do you think is the biggest shift in like your feelings as the interviewer versus the interviewee? Like what, what do you think that shift was? If there was one. Yeah, I just, oh, I, I feel for everybody so much because I can, I know <laughs> now being the interviewer, I'm um, just, i just hoping that like, because I hate, like, I don't like rejection like that. I'm like one of those people who just like am devastated <laughs> at the thought of it. So feeling that em- empathy um, for a few people, then now I had to like reject, quote unquote, um, and just trying to to either be able to like point them in other directions, like what other things that I think that they might be good at or like telling them to feel free to reach out to me again if you're like interested in like another position and things that, and things of that nature. So I think just wanting to not just like, and like, you can't do this for everybody, obviously it's not realistic, but um, for like certain candidates that you felt like just did really well, like continuing to have that door open to like network in the future. And that's something that like, I, I value now being on the other end of it. And, and um, cause I'm seeing where I can kind of continue to help them, even though it didn't work out in this position, like how else can I help folks that I felt like just did an amazing job, just wasn't the right fit at that, at that current time. Uh, and then as interviewee, I think I just got a, a little bit more relaxed, not a lot. It was still an anxious experience. <laughs> I think I just am a little bit more um, calm about it. Cause recognizing too, that, they just want to get to know you. They just wanted. To, they just want to get to know you and um, learn about your experience, and just want to hear you talk about yourself. And don't be afraid to brag about yourself. I think sometimes people can be a little modest, and the interview is not the time to be modest. Um, so, <laughs> after I interviewed with Mass Audubon, um, the person who interviewed me, like one question they asked me was like, "Why do you feel like you're good for this position?" And I said, um, as an answer, "Is like, well, I've already, I'm, I'm already doing this job." <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I got like, this. I'm good. <laughs> like, 
I said that I'm already doing this job, like, as within graduate school, like, I have, I basically that I have this experience because I feel like I'm already doing it. And I remember thinking afterwards, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was too arrogant. Like, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and then my, my supervisor, after I got the position, she was like, oh, like, once you said that, we knew you were the one. <laughs> no, I just say brag about, like, don't be afraid to brag about yourself because, like, mm-hmm. an advocate for yourself because you're the one who has to do it for sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that is very true. Advocate for yourself, you know, allow yourself to shine. That's that, like, that's some things I tell like my mentees that like, you know, you have a lot, you have a lot to offer. Know what you have to offer. That doesn't mean you're perfect and there's not room for improvement. You're not being delusional that, you know, that's a whole other world, but um, <laughs> like walk into an interview, walk into a room, knowing what you bring to the table, knowing who you are and knowing also that if there's something that you haven't learned yet or something that you need to work on, you will do that because you're awesome. You're going to do it. So, you know, yeah, go in there and shine. Let yourself shine. Talk about who you are, why you're awesome and what you can offer. And then, you know, let the people just bask in your glory a little. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Trust yourself and your abilities and then other people will see that. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Danielle, for coming on and talking with us. It was so good to hear from you and hear your perspective and your experiences, both as, you know, the person going in for an interview, but also as someone giving the interview. (laughs) It's really nice to hear that, you know, like, because I don't think a lot of people see it from the other side until, you know, until they get there. But um yeah, thank you so much for Yeah, thank you so such- much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for our listeners? First, for resources mentioned in this episode and our directory of steaminists, check out our website at projectsteam.org. And we'll see you next week where we'll talk about interviewing for academic positions starting from graduate school all the way to faculty with Dr. Crystal Amastarbird. See you then. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio, and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like Steam the Podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to Steam the Podcast on RSS.com community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources in our directory of Steaminists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.